Hello and welcome to WMQ&A. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lasowitz. And this week, our guests are the creators of the new Dark Horse graphic novel, Everyone is Tulip, Dave Baker and uh, Nicole Gu. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So uh, we like to start off asking our guests, uh, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? It's a good question. Um, I feel like if you talk about actual first comics, it's got to be newspaper strips for okay. me. So yeah. I read a lot of Garfield and Non Sequitur and just zits and whatever I could find. Every day after school, I would come home and, you know, eat a snack and get the funny pages out. <laughs> um, but then when I uh, kind of graduated to real, like, books, um, that would have been manga stuff in middle school. Um, and I think probably Fushigi Yugi would be the first one. Okay. That or, like, a, some random issue of Sailor Moon because <laughs> everybody read that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me it was uh, it was Hergé's Tintin, hands down. Okay. Yeah, yeah. My mom got them from the library for me because I was obsessed with like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys as a little kid. So mm-hmm. she was like, "Oh, look, it's another detective thing or whatever. You like these, right?" And I was like, oh, what is this? This is amazing!" <laughs> and then the first the first single issues that I had were my mom bought a a like value pack from Walden Books. Where it was oh, just yeah. like a bunch of random issues of Amazing Spider-Man, and it was during the Identity Crisis arc. So I had no, so it was a Spider-Man comic without Spider-Man. So I had no idea what was happening. It was just like I pieced it together that like J. Jonah Jameson had put a bounty out on Peter Parker's head as Spider-Man. So he invented these four other alternate personas: Dusk, Ricochet, Prodigy, Hornet, uh, and the. Is, that, is there one more? Or was, Just was that? Ricky J. Prodigy. Yeah, you got them all. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so he seemed, I, I can't remember what he did last week, but <laughs> Spider-Man <laughs> trivia, like a steel trap, baby. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I was, I was really into those. I, was, I loved Dusk. I loved the design for Dusk. And Ricochet, too. I really liked Ricochet. Because, um, you know, Ricochet was cool. He's got, like, a leather jacket, and he's got, like, these R's that he, like, pulls off the jacket throws like throwing stars that's cool right when you're like nine or whatever um so yeah those those you know tintin and spider-man but also if you're robin you're gonna sue somebody (laughs) right (laughs) yeah Yeah. well i mean in in hindsight they're all so blatantly like you know you know hornet really that's that's not particularly original and then you know ricochet is obviously superboy dusk is like i guess like a batman thing i don't even know what he's supposed to be a ripoff of he's just like an invisible black costume with like wings like like squirrel flying squirrel wings um but yeah so you know if if i ever end up working at marvel i'm gonna be like all right guys we're bringing back what are they called the slingers the web slingers yeah yeah well we're bringing back the slingers I'm gonna make them cool again. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure the one who's the slinger who's a mutant is one of the few who've not shown up on Krakoa yet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, wait, is Dusk a mutant? Wait, which one was it? It's it's either Dusk or Ricochet. Okay, because because there's also there's the mutant prodigy, and then right. the, there's also Spider Man who has the prodigy persona, and like. When that when when the mutant prodigy first came out, I was like, "What? This is what they're doing with prodigy? Oh, this is a completely separate other character that just happens to have the same name." Oh, all right, well, okay, whatever. 
comics has always been very good at recycling. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. And this is probably not interesting to anyone, but that this is well, this, this is the shit I think about. Right? No, like, no, no. How do you start... make the slingers cool? <laughs> I, listen, we're here to tackle the big questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, but uh, yeah. So uh, you guys are here to talk about everyone is tulip. Uh, your new graphic novel that by the time this airs will be out. Uh, from Dark Horse, uh, I will let my esteemed colleague, Mr. Lazowitz, uh, read the solicit text. Becca's dreams of fame seem to have come true when an internet performance art video she stars in goes viral overnight. But she quickly discovers the allure and danger of sudden stardom. From the creative team of Fuck Off Squad comes a psychological exploration of the media frontier and the unique pitfalls that come with internet fame. So, uh, good solicit text. I, did I write that, Nicole? Or did I don't I, think so. Who wrote that? That's not I bad. Think, I think Kate wrote it, our, our um, PR team. Oh, all right. Because usually, yeah, usually either the creators or the edit, editors write that stuff, and that's, that's solid. It might have been Connor. I honestly don't remember who wrote it, but if it was me, I give it a thumbs up. If it wasn't yeah. me, still give it a thumbs up. Whoever wrote that. <laughs> We'll just but say yeah, a wizard did it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, you know, uh, like you just so elegantly surmised by that uh, text that was written by a tiny mouse inside of the offices of Dark Horse. Um, our book is about a, a young girl who moves from uh, Arizona to Los Angeles in order to try and become an actor and then gets kind of sucked up into the high stakes world of YouTube performance art, which is a real thing. And um, it, it causes her to kind of reckon with uh, her preconceived notions of self-identity and how far she's willing to go in order to kind of get what she wants and um, how these these strange new vistas of internet fame might be more uh, dour, dark, and depressing than she would have initially thought. <laughs> mm -hmm. Usually, <laughs> yeah. Feel-good graphic novel of 2021. Yeah. yeah, which is actually kind of funny, though, because while it is about that, the book itself, I think, is actually kind of funny. Like, it is sad, sort of, but it's also got a, a weird kind of internet-based sense of humor. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I sometimes I feel like when I'm describing it to people, it sounds like I'm describing, like, Requiem for a Dream, when <laughs> it's just not, like, it's not that serious. Like, it's, you know, it's about trying to, you know, make a name for yourself and mm -hmm. uh, live your dreams. But, uh, you know, when, it, when it's all drawn by Nicole, it, it doesn't, it, it looks, it's much more uh, visually. I I draw could be that depressing. Yeah. <laughs> no, in, instead of the montage of like the, uh, you know, the, the needle going into the vial and the eye growing, going mm -hmm. wide and everything, it's, it's, it's everyone is tulip and nine panel grid. Yeah. Yeah. It's nine panel grids of just the main character saying uh, everyone is tulip to the, to the, to the, to the camera. It's the whole book. You don't need to read it. It's just that. <laughs> in many fascinating outfits <laughs> yes which we'll get to yes um usually uh we talk we start off asking about the origin of the book but uh the back matter uh did that for us you know basically uh you guys started pitching it kind of at each other on a trip to europe after attending thought bubble in england which first of all <sighs> international travel and conventions no shit right deep sigh <laughs> yeah a bunch of our friends just got into new york city comic-con and i'm like like every part of my being is like i don't want to get on a fucking plane but there's a small part of me that's like oh but i want to go to nyc and see all my friends yeah i mean for 
for um, Thought Bubble, it was so intense because we had to bring so many books and we mm-hmm. brought these like four suitcases. We normally travel with four suitcases, but because Dave and I wanted to travel around a little bit after the show, we brought like these two really big shitty suitcases with all our books in them. And then after the show, we just threw them away. <laughs> we, we sold every we sold every book we brought in suitcases we were obviously going to get rid of anyway because they had been just through the ringer through <laughs> the ringer and so then after we sold all our books uh thankfully that was a good uh, I, I was very happy that we sold all the books yeah uh when we were in leeds like the mm-hmm. little uh, little cottage house thing we were staying in, we like walked out and <laughs> opened the trash can and just dumped the suitcases <laughs> into the trash can. <laughs> it was great. It was such a fun like ah fuck you suitcases. <laughs> uh, about to carry around four empty suitcases to Paris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. But you know, but th- that that trip was super fun, and we made a lot of really fun uh, memories and and made some a lot of cool comics friends and then we had just finished pub we had just put out um fuck off squad which is our kind of coming of age romance comic published by silver sprocket Mm -hmm. um which if you're not familiar with them as a publisher you should go check out uh their stuff they put out it's really good they put out a lot of really cool weird funk comics and and rad uh zines and um uh so nicole and i had just paired up with them and they they had put out our book and, and it had come out like I'm not even joking like I think yeah and then like what is it it was like three weeks later we were in uh we were in Leeds it was oh, like yeah. yeah there was it was it was a it was a really weird stretch where it was like back to back to back conventions there was like three conventions on back to back weekends yeah it was I don't remember exactly what it was but I think it was small press expo Mm-hmm. New York and then Leeds in alternating weekends. It's a big show. Um, That's three big shows. It was, it was a lot of a lot of traveling. It was a lot of traveling and flying back and forth to California to get more books. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So you know we we had tabled at Thought Bubble and then we were like, cool, we've earned a vacation. We put out this book. Let's celebrate. Let's travel around. And we were both just kind of interested in a lot of these people that they were kind of, you know going viral around this time there's like a a russian performance artist named doll vita there was a um, there's a muppet troupe of internet uh videographer short filmy produ- uh, 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 performance art people called don't hug me i'm scared and they do all these really strange like the first video they put up just seems like a bootleg muppets show and then there's like six videos that they uploaded and they get weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder, and they're so good. Um, and you know, there's a couple people like that that we were interested in. Belle Delphine, who's this kind of like e-girl that kind of has gotten popular uh, a little bit later. And and so we were we were talking about these people and being like, how weird is it that you're just like a normal person one day and then the next day you are like known as this character right like especially people like poppy or belle mm-hmm. delphine belle delphine specifically it's really fascinating to me if, if anybody's unfamiliar with her story she was like a, a live streamer like a gamer girl and she did it under a pseudonym belle delphine and she wore a wig and she was kind of like she wasn't even playing a character at that point she was just streaming under that name and then everybody got so 
obsessed with her aesthetic because she had a very specific curated, everything was pink. She wore a pink wig. She was very cute. Like she was a very beautiful person that like played into a lot of kind of internet subculture tropes of like anime girls and gamer girls and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she got mega famous. Like, you know, I don't even know how many millions of followers she has now, 64, 85, whatever millions of followers. And she started getting kind of harassed online by all these shitty dudes who were saying inappropriate things to her. And then she started almost taking that sexual energy and like trolling people with it, where she would like make these weird videos where she would like spill milk on herself and like almost like negging the audience where it is like an erotic video because we all know what that milk looks like, but it's, like making fun of people for wanting to see her covered in milk or she would like eat giant chunks of broccoli that were like the size of her head and like you know making mm-hmm. making a yeah. specific facial gesture and and uh stroking it with her other hand and, and these very bizarre like like i was saying almost negging the audience and mm-hmm. so she started a an only fans doing this stuff and it made millions of dollars and it made so much money that she just segued into doing actual porn. And she now oh, does. Okay. And I think she makes like a million dollars a month off of her OnlyFans. Hell's bells. Wow. Right? So it's. it's I'm this... in the wrong line of work. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, man. You and me both. But it's, this, it's this, this idea that the internet can pull you in these directions that you don't even know exist. And you, even when you're fighting back against those bizarre narrative currents it's taking you into places that you never would have anticipated and then all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you're like how did i get here did i choose to do this is this what i want as a person um and i'm not saying that there should be any stigma around what belle delphine is doing i don't think there should Mm -hmm. but they're currently unfortunately in our culture which is very judeo-christian and conservative there is a a a looking down upon people who engage in sex work or are in, you know, showcasing natural things that we all do on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of started having these conversations about what it would mean if we did a book kind of like this, you know, what, what themes would we want to explore? What, what would the kind of trials and tribulations that the characters were engaging in? How, what, what, what do we have to say about that? And what kind of result it is, everyone is Tulip. It's interesting you talking about that just makes me think about it. There's a little bit of it in the book too about intent and the, the intent that the creator puts out versus what the viewer reads in it and whether what does it matter in the long run intent when the viewer brings their own preconceptions to it. I mean, that's something that's definitely uh, um, uh, a a kind of like theme running through the book is this idea of intent and reappropriation and artistically reappropriating things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also just kind of the privilege that it requires to be able to do these things on a large scale, um, which is coded in a very specific way in the book, which I won't spoil because you know, the book, theoretically, the book just came out, but (laughs) those, those are recurring themes. I also think it's interesting that that is 
one of the themes of the book and we have repeatedly we've done we've been doing a bunch of podcasts and we've repeatedly gotten these very pointed questions of what are you trying to say what is what is the message of this book mm-hmm. and both dave and i feel very much like well the book's out of our hands now we have things that we think about the story and about the intent and about blah 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 blah, blah but you have it now so it kind of doesn't matter what our intent was it's like you know, you always think about that high school literature class where the teacher talks about how the curtains were blue and it's so important and it means this or that when it's like, that writer probably just wrote some blue curtains as decoration. Mm-hmm. And now the reader has read into it all these very important things, which may or may not have been there, you know? And, and it's interesting that so much of the control actually lies with the reader. As someone whose degree is an English degree with focus in Shakespearean studies, the number of people like, well, Shakespeare, Shakespeare was writing trash. At least that is what his society viewed it as. It was disposable trash. It was, it's brilliant. It's more than that. But he was writing it to make money. And anyone who says otherwise is missing the point. Well, maybe not the point, but the context anyway. Yeah, definitely. Well, with him, it's it's less about the stories than it is about how he wrote them because so much of that stuff isn't even really his stories anyway. You know, they're they're mined from other places or other writers. Mm-hmm. You know, and the Tempest and Midsummer, kinda, but that's sort of a, a a hodgepodge. But the Tempest is about the only one with a an original plot, and it's still sort of retread. It's just completely recontextualized bits and pieces. But yeah. Mm-hmm. I could talk Shakespeare all night. I'm, I, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you guys uh, connect in the first place? Well, um, we met at a gallery show here in LA um, through some mutual friends. I went with some friends and he went with some friends and it happened that they were friends <laughs> with each other. And um, so we ended up hanging out at the gallery and then I think we went to kind of a karaoke dive bar afterwards with our, our larger group. And we um, were, you know, sitting in this shitty karaoke bar. And as artists do, D- Dave is an artist as well. Um, we started playing this kind of um, exquisite corpse style game where we were drawing stuff and then passing it around and, um, you know, person to person getting to add something to one drawing. And um, so Dave, um, you know, saw something I drew and um, was like, oh, you can actually draw. You are underselling that so much. You are I know, but I, 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 was, I was leaving you the opening to talk. <laughs> so when she, when she says that she, I saw something she drew, she's, it is absolutely true. That is a factual statement. However, the specific <laughs> thing was that I drew a guy doing this, uh, making a fist and uh, curving his arm like he's, you know, flexing his bicep. And then Nicole took it and drew a shake weight in the guy's hand. And I was like, oh, oh, I see who you are. Okay, let's hang out. This is great. And so basically, and it, from, basically from that, I was like, do you want to make some comics? Do you want to, like, you're, you're, you've got a funny sense of humor. Like, you, you can draw really well. Like, what are you doing? You want to... You wanna, work on some weird indie comics that aren't going to pay you anything and are going to suck all your free time and 
ultimately doom you to a career where everyone dies penniless and alone? Mm-hmm. And, and I was, was like, like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, you're like Jack Kirby? Yeah, we're totally going to end out better than him. Let's do it. I mean, he did live where I'm from, so, you know, we're like Yeah, literally. He literally lived in your hometown. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For my 30th birthday, we went to his grave and his old house, which is like not mm-hmm. far from where Nicole grew up. Yeah. Oh, wow. And it's completely renovated and unrecognizable. And there's yeah, people it's in so it. weird. <laughs> it's so weird. It should be a museum. It should be like pristine and like a plaque out front being like literally the greatest imagination in the modern time lived here. But instead it's just like this weird stucco like, and, and we, were, we were, I wanted to take a picture out front of it. And if we were waiting for the family that lives there to leave, they were like getting in their minivan and shit. And I was just like, oh, but I want to take a photo. So I was like, let's just walk down the block. Let's just walk down the block. So we like walked down the block and waited for them to leave. Yeah, it was great. I was like in a car, like, like, like stakeout type. And oh, like, totally. Yeah. 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 We had just gone, we had just gone to his grave and it was very nice because there was a, there was, you know, I, I, we went there and, and, you know, it was kind of a comics is the closest thing I have to a religion. Uh, and I think Kirby is probably the closest thing there is to the Pope. So I went and, you know, set a little, set a little something to his grave and uh, next to it, there was a little like uh, Captain America shield someone had left and a little uh, like tchotchke Mjolnir Thor's hammer and um, and a little a little vase with some some like uh, not fully dead flowers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you know, there it, it was nice to be like, oh, it's not just me being <laughs> a great person yeah. going to a grave of someone I've never met. Um, you know, well, was a, it's not like he has some big elaborate headstone either. It's you know, it's a flat plaque that you'd have to like know where it is to find. Yeah. Yeah, and it, you know, it has his name on it. He's buried right next to Roz. And there's a little, like, over his head, uh, over his, the name on his plaque, there's a little, like, King Kirby crown. And it says something like, uh, I, don't even th- I don't even think it says Jacob. His, I don't think it says his legal name. Or okay. it's not his legal name because he legally changed it. But it, it says Jack Kirby. And then it's something along the lines of, like, uh, father something creator. There's, like, mm-hmm. three, three one-word things and then hit the dates of his life um and then yeah we went we went there and then we went to his his old house and uh yeah (laughs) i dig i dig i dig i dig old kirby i'm a weird guy though because like that's my idea of like i don't like parties but my idea of a good time is going to cemeteries like we also went to bella lugosi's grave like yeah like that's that's what i like to do for fun and we went that time we went with (laughs) <laughs> we went with our friends who are lovely people, but weren't like in it. You know, you know what I mean? Like, okay. it's a weird thing to do. Like, I get it. Like, not everybody wants to go like see the grave of somebody. <laughs> One of our friends was kind of just like milling around going like, this is weird, man. Why are we in a fucking graveyard? And I was like, I get it. I get it. But I'm going to go talk to Bella Lugosi now. <laughs> in a bit. Now, now here's, here's the question. The follow up question to that, though. Did you play Bella Lugosi's Dead before 
<laughs> I definitely, I definitely sang it while we were driving. Uh, All right, yeah. To, to the car, to the car ride while going there. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel differently about Bela Lugosi though. I, I don't want to compare Bela Lugosi and Jack Kirby. I love Bela Lugosi as an actor, but that mm-hmm. guy was a piece of shit. Like that dude <laughs> sucked as a human. Whereas yeah. Kirby, I, I literally, you know, I, I, I don't believe every story that he told, but I believe a lot of them. And the only ones to me that matter are that he murdered Nazis. <laughs> man, man killed Nazis. Yep, that's thumbs. all that matters. Yeah. And, and you're, you're, by the way, you're in the right crowd. My wife and I went to Edgar Allan Poe's grave on our honeymoon. So. Oh, man. See, <laughs> Matt, what's up, man? Let's go on a road trip. Let's do this. <laughs> Damn right. Yeah. The one, the one I want to do now, which is I just recently found out is, is here in Los Angeles, is uh, Jerry Siegel's buried here. Really? Uh, yeah, he's buried at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Did he live here? I, I guess. Yeah, I think so. He's buried here. This is from Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland. Yeah, they're they're both from Cleveland, but Joe Schuster, the artist on Superman, uh, is originally from Canada, and I think he's buried in Cleveland. Um, mm-hmm. But but Jerry, um, I think he spent his twilight years out here. Um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he did because there's the whole story. I mean, granted, he could have done it from everywhere, but the whole he wrote to Variety when Superman the movie came out, and there was that whole thing. So it oh yeah, the, felt a, like a curse he, upon the Superman film. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it felt like he. It's so weird you bring that up. I literally was just reading that yet, like literally reading it yesterday. Like I, it's so long. Like I don't know if you've read read the whole thing, but it is like a serial killer letter. Like you could have accomplished. Hey. DC Comics ripped me off and now they're making a movie that's going to generate millions of dollars and we haven't seen anything. You can accomplish that in like a page. It's like 20 pages. Like it is, he includes contracts. He includes like financial statements. <laughs> it's, it's so exhaustive. And I was like, this is like, I believe you, Jerry. And even I'm like, this is a little much. I mean, listen, we're talking about golden age comics creators. I mean, the prose is going to be purple. <laughs> But the important thing is he brought receipts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he really did. He really did. Yeah. Oh, man. I uh, I am within, like, the, I got, like, 75 pages to go in um, Abe Reisman's, uh Stan Lee bio that came out yes. this year. Yeah. Which is depressing. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't read that one yet. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of anytime people talk shit on Stan Lee. Uh, so I want, I want to read that. Um, uh Abraham Reisman, I'm so so on. Sometimes I like what he has to say, and sometimes I'm like, these hot takes are fucking lame, bro. Um, uh, but Warm that, take. yeah, yeah, he he just has some weird some weird opinions on some stuff. But I do, uh, I think that's the problem. This goes back to the idea of the book, right? Is we we know so much about everyone because of the internet. Like mm-hmm. I kind of don't want to know Abraham Reisman's thoughts on the boys season two. And yet I do because he posted them on Twitter and because I'm a comics freak. I like remember every thing that people post and you know, you know what I mean? Like the internet just flattens the subjective human experience of into just ones and zeros of like positives and negatives, which is a very strange, it's a very strange time to be alive. Um, and I don't think it's as positive as people often talk about it um like part of me is like in 25 years collectively we're going to be looking back and be like yeah we fucked that up like we should have 
kept kids off the internet. We should have like, you know, helped people understand what was real and what was fake. And we should have like immediately outlawed deep faking as soon as that shit popped up. Like, you know what we shouldn't do? Start an Instagram specifically for kids. Yeah. That seems very, very, very strange. Yeah. Like how exactly are we vetting that? Yeah. (laughs) But even like the, the root core idea of Instagram, right? Like the root core idea of Twitter is what do you think? And the root core idea of Instagram is what do you look like? And forcing a child who is developing an understanding of the world to instantly grapple with that question that will warp you, you know? Maybe it will make you more prepared and able to present yourself, but it, it really seems like that would just give people more issues than our culture, which already excels at giving people insecurities and issues. Mm-hmm. There's, this, there's this baby uh, who is an Instagram baby who I watch videos of because his mom, like, they cook together and he, like, cooks with her and it's basically him like measuring cups and spilling all over the place and he's adorable he's so cute they're the best but you can see him looking at the screen and seeing himself and you know that that's warping his perception of self from he's like maybe not even a year when she started doing those videos with him Hmm. and so like from basically birth, this kid is aware of his self-image to like an extreme. And I don't know what effect that's going to have on him in the long run, but I can't imagine it's going to be great. Or even like, and even like, you know, there's, there's a a bunch of Nicole and I were talking about doing a ballroom dancing comic for a while. And so there's a lot of these ballroom dancer people that we were following. And, you know, I was kind of doing research about that world and, And there's one, there was a, there's a duo. There's, it's a, it's a young black kid and a a white girl who are, they were, they were a dancing team. Basically they were, they were a unit and seeing how, cause not only did they have, they were both in each other's Instagram videos, but for a while they had their, their own joint Instagram. So there's these three Instagram pages that need content to be filled that obviously their parents are co-running together. Right. Um, and gen- basically generating propaganda for their six-year-olds and their ability to dance, right? And this was a little while ago, maybe like five or six years ago that we were talking about doing this. So I've stayed following the pages because I'm just so perversely curious about how this is functioning with these two people. And the boy has gone on to become a somewhat successful child dancer. He's appeared on a bunch of dance TV shows. He's been in a bunch of music videos and it appears as though it is affecting him in the way that a normal-ish kid who is a performer is. You know, like my mom is a director. She owned a theater company. I was a theater kid. I'm very used to performing and being around those type of people. You know, I'm, I'm used to like when the lights are on, like the show must go on mm-hmm. type of approach to living. And so it, it, that looks more or less to me like the normal amount of you're being warped by people telling you what you look like and auditions and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The girl, unfortunately, it's, it's had a very different effect on her where he is a little kid who dances. Well, he's, he's now like an 11-year-old or something, but 
maybe a little he's older than that. Now, yeah, right? I think he's older than that now. But whatever. Like, you know, he's a he's a, a kid his age who's a dancer and has the foibles of having auditioned 500 times and have people tell him his ears are too big or whatever. Like the, the stuff that the trappings that come with attempting with a capital A as a child, her, you can tell that her mother and or the feedback she's receiving are steering her in a very sexualized direction in a very um, different type of performance where she is, you know, an 11 year old or however old she is. Mm. And she's arching her back, popping out her ass, mm. you know, angling her face, doing, doing very specific adult facial features that are supposed to be in air quotes, attractive. Um, it is, it's a very, very, I mean, I, I hate to say negative because I don't think anything in life is negative or positive in, a, in an objective sense. I think everything is a mixture but with these two people, it is so fascinating to see how our culture treats boys and girls and what we expect of them and what we want them to do and how social media reinforces those things mm -hmm. and how the dance world and the, the world of... And the other thing about it too is like he has a family and they're like a normal-ish family, right? I think it's his mom and dad and like he has two siblings and they're always in the videos together and they're like screwing around and they're doing dance competitions in the backyard and like sometimes it's footage of him like competing and sometimes it's footage of them like at a barbecue or whatever just like hanging out the the little girl i think she's an only child and she has an entire room in her house that has a dance bar and a ceiling to to floor mirror and the far end of the room is just trophies so it's like you can see in these little snippets that you get into these people's lives of like, oh, this mother has, or maybe it's her father, but I'm, I'm like 99% sure it's her mother because she's been in a couple of the videos. Mm -hmm. um, her mother places emphasis on this as this child's identity. Even if the child maybe has times where she doesn't want it to be her identity, it is her identity. Like she is a dancer. She competes. She is going in this direction and it is, I don't know that it's healthy to have a an entire room with a floor to ceiling <laughs> mirror. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just being a weirdo, but I I don't know, man. I mean that it is a dance thing. Good. <laughs> it is it is a dance <laughs> yeah. thing. It is a dance thing, but I, there's a difference between going to a place with other children and practicing a craft and then going home and being a kid and the room that is an altar to the self. Mm -hmm. You know, those are, those are just fundamentally different things. And that's kind of that same weird, creepy aesthetic is in the book, right? Like mm -hmm. there's multiple characters who are not necessarily a direct reflection of this story because this wasn't like a direct parallel that we were drawing a comparison to, but there are multiple characters that reckon with ideas of compromise and artistic integrity where they're asked to do things that they, they either don't think are necessarily, you know, maybe in the best interest of everyone involved, or they just, you know, cross an artistic line. And mm -hmm. so there's a small kind of nucleus of characters. Our main character, Becca, this a director character named Stanley, who kind of like show runs these videos and like three or four supporting characters who are in the orbit of these videos who are either working on the videos or trying to get in the videos or you know there's this 
kind of idea that the camera is a tool for commoditization and whatever you point the camera at becomes the commodity. And in a late stage capitalist society, everything is a commodity and everybody wants to be a commodity. Mm -hmm. So that struggle is the kind of internal engine of, of the book sort of. Now, you know, the stuff that we talked about, you know, a lot of this predates, uh, you know, TikTok, which, you know, blew up last year. But I'm, I'm, yeah. I was curious whether, you know, the rise of, of, of TikTok and, and, you know, certainly people last year having more, you know, at home time to make these kinds of videos, <laughs> you know, the, the short form videos galvanized the the sort of culture that, gives rise to concepts like like in everyone is tulip yeah i think the the interesting thing about tiktok compared to other algorithmically served content social media services is that tiktok the reason why it grew so fast and the reason why everybody in air quotes likes it mm -hmm. is because the typical way that a social media algorithm works is it shows whatever you post to a certain percentage of your followers. And then based on its watch time and success rate, it'll be shown to slightly more of your followers and then slightly more of your followers in these like tiered bucket systems, right? Mm -hmm. So when you post on Instagram or Twitter, since they've gotten rid of chronological ordering and switched over exclusively to algorithmically driven content, um, the, these, it's very hard to achieve penetration with your content. It's very hard to get people that you that you know like your work. You know, mm -hmm. like, I mean, I'm not a particularly big influencer. I only have 8,000 followers, right? And to some people that might seem like a lot, but on a scale of 8,000 to 200 million, like 8,000 is just a drop in the bucket, right? Mm -hmm. And on an average post that I make for drawing, because I post a lot of in-progress artwork, it probably gets, if I'm lucky, like a hundred likes out of 8,000 people. So that shows you how that algorithm is functioning, where it, it shows a very small percentage of your followers, your content, and then the success rate from there varies, right? The way TikTok changed that is they have this thing called the for you page. So there's two ways to scroll on TikTok. There's your followers, which are people that you're, or your following page, which are people that you have actively said, I want to see more of this person's content. Mm -hmm. And then a for you page where TikTok itself analyzes your interests and then pairs you with things they think you'll like. So the way the TikTok algorithm works is it, instead of showing your content to a small pool of your followers, it shows it to a small pool of people on the platform, regardless of if they're following you or not. So you can have literally zero people that know who you are and the next day if your content is correctly you know targeted at a specific demographic you can have millions of views on that one piece of content which functions like that almost across the the platform and that is crack cocaine like that is it that mean that you are asking people once they understand that and they know their target demographic people are going to be chasing that dragon and it works, man. It works. Like I, I also have a podcast and our first video on, on TikTok for our podcast, deep cuts, mm -hmm. I think it got like 
16,000 views, which for having no followers is insane. And then three videos later, we had a video get over a million views because, you know, this is the, the kind of way that TikTok has, it's cracked the, the, the way to entice people to continually be making this very, very consumable, snackable, you know, mm -hmm. like, ah, give it to me, 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 content. I think um, that's the other major factor and difference between TikTok and some of the other stuff, which Instagram and these other companies are trying to kind of glom onto. But the fact that TikToks are so short um, and our attention span as a society has just every year gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I feel it myself. I feel it in the amount that I read. I feel it in the way that I'm on my phone while I'm watching a movie. I feel it in the way that, you know, I can't get through, you know, a news article anymore. Um, we don't have the attention span to watch a whole video anymore. And so the fact that these are like 60 seconds long, kind of at the most, I mean, there are longer ones, but you know, you just flip and flip and flip and flip and flip and the scroll is infinite and addictive and um, you kind of can't get away from it once you've started. And not based on people, it's based on interests. So if you're yeah. into cats, but you're own, but you know, normally you'd be following a couple cats on Instagram or whatever. Uh -huh. And then you're like, oh, I've seen all of these photos. I'm going to get off now. But with the way TikTok works, it's just they'll keep giving you every cat video and you'll just live there and then wither and die like the guy in, you know, in, in Last Crusade that drinks from the Holy, uh, <laughs> holy Chalice. And I was like, ah, uh, uh, He chose Instagram. poorly. <laughs> he chose poorly. <laughs> he chose poorly, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, all of this, I'm not going to say that this was, like, obviously we weren't thinking about TikTok when we first started the book. Right. But it is... These the principles, stuff. yeah, yeah. The principles are cross. It doesn't matter if Scooby Dooby-Ger comes out tomorrow, and everybody loves Scooby Dooby-Ger. It's going to be some version of the conversation we're having now, and you know, it'll it might function a little bit differently. It might be more successful at this idea than that idea. Um, but all of these, you know, they're it's it's going to be relevant for the foreseeable future because unfortunately, nothing is going to change and. Uh, none of these companies are going to be regulated and none of them are going to be forced to be uh, held accountable to do anything, even though Facebook is just a cesspool for right-wing terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, and they've only barred Trump for two years. Coincidentally, how funny is that? That it's just the internal ruling council of, 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 of Facebook is they've like, we're bad Trump, bad Trump trying to stage a coup. We're going to just bar you for two years, which is exactly the amount of time that it's going to take for there to be another election so that then when that election happens, we can make all the money off of the Russian bots paying us to corrupt our democracy. Uh, mm -hmm. Cool. We like money. We love money. So cool. They do. It's true. Yep. 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 <laughs> yeah, you were like you like asked a question about a comic book and it just veered off into neo-nazis and like the destruction of our country <laughs> not the first time probably won't be the last yeah 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 we, we, listen we, we we tell every guest tangents are welcome and we stand by it yeah. Yeah. Well, let's all just circle back to the point that 
there's never anything better to do than punch a Nazi. Yep, true. I agree. Mm-hmm. Take a lesson from Jack. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, so Nicole, uh, mm-hmm. you ha- you drew a shit ton of outfits in this book <laughs> for for Becca slash Tulip. Uh, you know, was that uh, was that like you know was that a challenge or was this a chance for you to like burn a whole bunch of like fashion ideas that you had lying around in your brain or in sketchbooks or something like that? Um, I mean, it's both. Not that I had anything pre-prepped, but mm-hmm. I think it is a challenge because, you know, at a certain point you kind of run out of ideas, you know, like, oh, I've done like 75 of these. What else can I do? What's next? What weird thing? But like within that idea, that's where a lot of the fun and the play comes where it's like, oh, I'm at the cap of what I thought I knew about, you know, weird outfits. Now I have to push myself and find some new fun things to draw or like, you know, go do some research about Okator fashion shows and weird shit that that people put on runways. It's like Mm. the stuff that ends up on runways is just insane and nobody would ever wear it most Mm. of the time. (laughs) And it's a, it's a really good resource for like, how weird can we get? Um, and it's, it's kind of fun to push yourself of like, well, I did the three things that I had ideas for before I started the book. And now I get to like, well, what's next? Put a chair on her head. I don't know. (laughs) Oh man. I, I, I did the thing I had the three ideas for. This is a nine panel grid and I've made like, I've got like 12 more of these pages to do. I only have 75 of these drawings, so, you know, figure something out. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, that's that stuff is all Nicole. Like, I, in the script, I wrote, like, oh, yeah, there should be a nine-panel grid where we're seeing the videos that Tulip stars in or Becca stars in, and, like, mm-hmm. she should be wearing weird outfits. That's it. That's, like, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, the script literally is, like, that's the header for the page, and then it's, like, panel one, Becca, everyone is Tulip. Panel two, Becca, everyone is Tulip. Panel three, like it's, so, you know. There's not a lot of direction in that stuff, but it, I don't need it because we've talked about this. We know what it is, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Dave and I spend a lot of time kind of talking about the script or the story, rather, talking about the story before I ever start drawing. Mm-hmm. And then Dave will write the script and then I read the script and then we talk about the script for a while. So it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of time thinking about what the thing needs to be before it ever gets made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the scripts more often than not end up being kind of like letters to Nicole where mm-hmm. sometimes they're like very detail oriented and like, this is the panel and it's this shape and it looks like that. And we're, you know, it's explaining some sort of, some sort of formal element or comics mechanic idea that's in the book because both Nicole and I are very interested in the language of comics Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's that stuff. And then sometimes it's literally just like, yeah, hey, here's like a four page sequence. Um, do the Nicole Goo girls standing in the sand on the beach with their hair blowing in the wind thing here. Because um, Nicole, nobody does sad girls with wind blowing in their hair like Nicole. It's like, that's like her guitar solo, you know? They say, they say the hands are the guitar solo of the artist, but no, they don't know. They don't know. Sad yeah. girls. That explains why I can't draw hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I, it's, I just, you know, I, th- I think that's also just like one of the things a lot of people have been very nice and complimentary <clears throat> about the book is, you know, they've said that multiple people have said that it feels like there's like a, a cohesive vision. Like there's the book mm-hmm. is being made by one person, which is the first time we heard that from somebody, I was like, what the fuck? This is the nicest thing anybody has ever said to me. Like this, this will take me through another 500 rejection letters because this is so good. <laughs> and, and I think that's because of what Nicole's talking about, where we're always kind of batting these ideas back and forth. And like, at this point, our process basically is like one of us has an idea for a book. We kind of agree on the basic theme or whatever. And then we go to this park by your house and we play catch uh, and we just throw the baseball back and forth and we start talking about the themes or the characters or what do you want to draw or what, what do you think of this narrative mechanic idea or what do you not want to draw, you know, like that, that. And then over the course of those sessions, the books kind of take shape and they they end up being very, hopefully very rich, you know, very, very textured and, and deep not in terms of like deep, but just in terms of there, there's effort being put into it and it is not just a surface level execution. Because it's that's like a therapy sessions for the book. Yeah, kinda, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like the book is our client and we're the lawyers and we have to like, you know, defend it in, in public court. So we're talking about, you know, well, what are the weaknesses? What are the strengths? What, what's an idea that, we had for another book that we could actually, you know, it would make more sense for this thing, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the process of that thing. Cause we, we just kind of end up pitching it back and forth to each other. And it ends up kind of that pressure ends up making that, you know, shitty piece of coal idea mm-hmm. into a diamond. Hopefully, hopefully, well, you know, that's the goal, right? yeah. I, I do like the idea that, you know, the next time Nicole is on a project that, that Dave, maybe you're not involved in, you know, you can contribute that blurb on the back that says, nobody draws sad girls standing on the beach watching the waves. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. I should have asked you for a quote for Batgirl, man. I was, yeah, I was I about I... to say that, that there was definitely some sad Cassandra Kane with the wind blowing through her hair in that book. Yeah. It definitely is. I mean, so that kind of, <laughs> yeah, that kind of opened my eyes too. Cause I was just like, oh, I normally picture this on the beach when they're being sad, but you drew them in this like crazy cathedral window thing in a library. Oh, we can put sad girls with hair blown in their wind everywhere. <laughs> Listen, we can all agree that there is nowhere that Sad girls uh, standing together, looking forlornly uh, out into the distance, don't belong. That's what I'm saying, man. That's yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so uh, we did get uh, one or two uh, Twitter questions. I wanted to give a uh, a spot to our uh, Gold Star uh, question asker student Asimov fangirl, uh, who wanted to know a little bit about the uh, coloring process. Uh, decisions made for the comic, uh, especially colors used for like the photo shoots and the flashbacks uh, in the book. Um, you mentioned that that uh, Nicole and uh, Ellie Hulk were kind of co-colorists on this. Yeah. You know, what, what was kind of the, um, I guess, back and forth or division of labor there? So Ellie absolutely did most of the heavy lifting. She colored basically the whole book. Um, the reason I'm credited as um, yeah, having helped is that before we started pitching the book, I did, um, I think it was eight sample pages. 
um, and I colored them myself. Um, so a lot of the kind of color ideas, like what uh, they're talking about, I set up in those first eight pages. Mm -hmm. So things like having the blue light as representative of the internet. So anywhere it's, we're watching a video or someone has a phone in their hand or there's some Instagram scroll, that's all represented by this really light blue. Um, and then the whole, the rest of the like real life stuff is in this sort of drabber, um, pinkish reddish tones. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's flashbacks, which are done in this um, purple color, which is kind of our version of sepia. So it's there to separate the flashbacks from the present day stuff, but also because um, it's this sort of kind of dull purple. And Becca moves from Arizona to LA. And for her, she hated Arizona. She feels like it's this shithole that no one could ever be happy in. You know, people go there to have babies and do meth, you know, <laughs> and, and most people don't get out. So when she moves from Arizona to LA, her entire world brightens up. Um, but the brighter colors are still dull compared to this world of the internet. So it's sort of these three stages of saturation, I guess you could say. And that doesn't necessarily reflect reflect the reality of these three states of being, but more how Becca feels about those three things. Yep. Um, so a lot of that stuff is set up beforehand, but in execution, Ellie like really just. Yeah, she did, she did most of the heavy lifting and then every once yeah. in a while, Nicole would come in and just kind of like. Make some colors at the end, make, you know. Make some colors at the end. You know, it's basically, it's like 90% uh, Ellie, 10% Nicole, where it's just mm -hmm. like, oh, this feathering thing could use some more love or oh this area over here it's like once yeah. that style had been established <coughs> Nicole would provide a little bit of direction of like you know take it in this way and then mm -hmm. Ellie really ran with it and and built it out and and you know yeah. constructed the you know it's one thing to have an idea right it's another thing to actually execute that idea at a high level and yeah and I just I'm not a competent enough colorist to draw 170 pages of a book and, and fully color them. Mm -hmm. Not only am I really slow, but I, you know, I'm spending a lot of brain power making every color decision where it's, you know, I think it came a lot. She's a colorist. So it, it comes a lot more naturally to someone like Ellie. Um, and it just, she did a great job. And, and in terms of kind of arranging space and, and picking out places for opportunities for these specific colors and stuff, she did a, just a really amazing job. Um, you know, get, thinking about uh, layouts and uh, I, was, I was looking at some uh, sample pages on your website from, from Fuck Off Squad. And uh, for, for, first of all, for the, for the listeners, this is the most we've earned our explicit rating since we talked about Fuck Tarkington when Kyle Starks and uh, Chris Schweitzer was on. <laughs> anyway, never minding that. Uh, there's this great page where two characters are having a conversation at an arcade, and it plays mm -hmm. out across a series of panels that are homages to different uh, classic arcade games. So, so it's, you know, Pac-Man 
and and like Marvel versus Capcom and and the Simpsons uh, multiplayer cabinet, you know. But like the the character, the sprites or whatever are having the conversation that the two characters are having that are playing the games. Uh, it, you know, it's how did you crack that nut where it's like, well, we want the dialogue, but you know, we want to make sure that there's something interesting to accompany this. You know, what we know is a dialogue heavy scene. Um. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but my memory of that is that that scene is written as a normal sequential scene with the characters in the arcade just playing games. And I had the idea of like, wouldn't it be really silly if we, I I just wanted to play around with pixel art. I was like, this is a really fun opportunity to like get to draw these characters as pixel games. And Um, I think it worked really well because it doesn't really matter what game cabinet they're standing at or what angle you're showing them in because the conversation is what's important. And when you take those games and you translate the characters into the games, I think it feels really um, experiential to what it would be like if you were there playing because those two characters aren't probably even going to be looking at each other because they're playing games. You know, you can have a conversation and be playing, you know, Marvel versus Capcom, um, and you're looking at the screen. You're not looking at the person you're playing with. And so yeah, you're trying to get Ryu to do that Haruken thing, and you got to go up and back and around <laughs> while hitting power. And you know, you just—it's hard to do that up and back and around thing while hitting power punch. Mm-hmm. You know, plus, you're out there. You're being watched. You know, you're in public. There's the pressure's yeah. on there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I—I I think it was half just fun opportunity to get to you know put my characters into these like fun pixel art games and half I think it really works as a storytelling device to kind of put you in the place of these characters um and and their experience of this conversation which is kind of like a half conversation because you're half paying attention to the conversation and half paying attention to the games that you're playing Mm -hmm. yeah I mean there's some stuff in the books that we make where it is very calculated ahead of time where it's like this is a thing that we know thematically links up to the story in a very specific way and it, and it expresses a certain component of the story visually and then there's another kind of tier where it's almost like you kind of have to listen to books when you're making them you kind of have to like understand what they need mm-hmm. uh and and not be afraid to go that extra mile because in the end you will be rewarded right you know the 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 extra oomph will will be appreciated mm-hmm. um and that's kind of that's that's kind of my my crucible honestly is i always have new ideas for the books that i'm drawing and i i'm always like oh but i could just add this that'd be really cool and nicole you know is over the corner being like bro is this idea oh that was intense uh neighbor uh this Nicole, or she's like, Dave, is this, is this really going to add that much? And I was like, yeah, it's going to add this for me. It's going to be this blah, 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 blah. The book that he's working on right now started out as 40 pages. <laughs> Dave, Dave, how many pages is it now? It's like, it's like 144 of comic sequentials and then like two, like a, like 90 of, of fake magazine mm-hmm. articles from a hundred years mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he, you know, and I do this to a certain extent, not as much as him, but, you know, he lets the story tells, tell him what it needs, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, you go through and you, you have what you have and then you read it through and you're like, oh, well, this, 
transition doesn't work or I need this here. Or I need to add a scene here or, you know, these kinds of things. That doesn't happen as much when I'm drawing because I'm not, I write occasionally and we have lots of story discussions about our books, but I'm not really writing scripts for this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, my version of it more so is, you know, Dave and I are both really interested in formal stuff. And so a lot of the time we will bake those ideas into the story beforehand. But I think one of the most interesting parts of making comics is being able to look at a chunk of story and figure out what the best way to tell it is. Um, and, you know, taking a page of script, taking a, you know, scene or whatever it is and saying like, oh, this is maybe like a standard scene, but if I do this page layout or if I tell it with cell phones or if I um, show Instagram scroll, like how do I show an Instagram scroll? It just says she's scrolling through Instagram. So how do I show that to the reader in an interesting way? You know, and, and finding those places in the book where you can just give it a, like a little extra oomph. Mm -hmm. You know, like what is that thing that's going to make this a more interesting and be more of a comic than an ev a comic ever comic. Like, what can I only do in this form? And that's where, you know, you kind of letting the, the page tell you what it needs to be. And, and it's mm -hmm. really, that's exciting for me. So, uh, you know, I think we mentioned this earlier, you know, you guys are doing a, a lot of press for, uh, for everyone is Tulip. Trying to, trying to, trying to do a lot of press, trying to tell people that the book is cool. I mean, we yeah. are doing a lot of press. Whether it's reaching people is something different. <laughs> Fair, but uh, you know, one thing that stood out to me is, uh, you know, the the most recent issue or the one that's coming out of of Hassan Osman Al House uh, panel by panel is, yeah. you know, uh, Tulip's going to be the featured book. Now, uh, you know, to to we lowly comics podcasters, uh, you know. That sounds like the coolest shit ever. You know, uh, oh, man. how, you know, when, when Haas or whoever reached out and was like, we're going to do, you know, an entire issue on, on your book, you know, what, what was the kind of the, the reaction? Uh, uh, I think I did a happy dance. I was like, <laughs> I was just like, there's no way this is happening. That's, that's the real answer. Before the happy dance, it was, <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Uh -huh. This isn't going to happen. This is too good. This would never happen. Like I'm, I'm such a fan of him mm -hmm. and a, such a, such a fan of his brain and of his YouTube channel, strip panel naked. If you yeah. haven't watched any of those videos, please do. Uh, and I love the magazine. Uh, in fact, and this is so funny how this all ties in. When we went to thought bubble, mm -hmm. when we were on the airplane there, literally the only thing I wanted to do while we were in England was try and find Haas, because I knew he was going to be at that convention, uh -huh. and, and I said to Nicole, like, I just, I just love panel by panel. Like, I just, I hope we can find him. Like, I hope I can get away from the table just long enough, because I don't think he has a table. I don't know what he looks like. Like, I just hope I can like find him and run into him, because I just want to like talk to that guy. Like, he just mm. seems so cool. Yeah. And <laughs> like the second day of the convention, he came to our table and bought a bunch of our books and I recognized his voice. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, are you, are, are you Haas from Strip Panel Naked? And he was like, yeah, 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 that's me. And I was like, ah, I fucking love you, dude. Like, I fucking love you. And it sounds like, this sounds like I'm making this up because I don't know, like I'm trying to butter somebody up who- It is not a press tour thing. It's, it's not, it's 100% real. Like I am such a fan 
of him and his magazine. And I, I just, I want more things like panel by panel. Like I love a, I, I, I wish that comics academia was a thing. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, present company excluded we all like comics and stuff but <clears throat> none of us are writing master's theses on fucking comic books like it's just not happening but you know who did fucking has i i bought a bunch of them like there's uh this dude named named uh i think his name dave clock thomas clock he wrote a he wrote a his master's thesis on on uh matt fraction and gabriel ba and and uh fabio moon's uh, casanova oh, and he yeah, I went and bought that. Like, I'm I'm a crazy person, and like I, like like I also went and bought. Uh, I think it's like the the Minnesota University. Somebody at the Minnesota at uh, University of Minnesota wrote a a, uh, a thesis paper on the works of um, oh fuck, what's his name? Howard the Duck, Stuart the Rat, Steve Gerber. Steve Gerber. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm such a I'm such a fake geek girl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they wrote a they wrote a thesis paper on the works of uh steve gerber and i went and bought that because i was like i need to read this this is fucking rad and so i want more critical academic you know check out the big brain on brad writing about the medium of comics because when you have that then you can you can leverage that into various places you can get you know uh, the books read like you know how many comics are on the Times 100 Greatest Novels of the 21st Century? One is Watchmen. Mm. Watchmen's great. Watchmen's great. But there are other books that could be on that list. But there's only one, and it's Watchmen. Um, and so I, I'm just such a fan of anybody going out on a limb and being like, this thing doesn't exist, and I want it to exist, so I'm going to will it into being. And like, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but comics journalism kind of fucking sucks kind of fucking dead there's not a whole lot it's not great reviews like i mean even just the process of i'm not even this isn't even the academic side but like literally just reviews don't really exist anymore like i have a giant google doc with nicole where we have scoured the internet for every comic book podcast every nerd centric podcast every podcast with geek in the title <laughs> every self-publishing self-publishing podcast artists podcasts sites that you can send your books to to get reviewed on indie books like and you know i'm i'm in this to win this man like i'm <laughs> i'm a fucking lifer like i love comics and the fact that nicole and i have a book out by a, a major publisher is such a cool thing to me that i wanted to be able to take advantage of that and show people check it out make it a fucking thing you know how many review copies we've sent out? Not a lot, man. Not a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a bummer. But to answer your question explicitly after rambling for 15 minutes about how much I love Haas. <laughs> you love I, I, I love that dude. But I was so excited. Like, I haven't, we haven't read the issue yet, so I don't know what everybody said. But yeah. uh, we did the interview with him a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And we talked for like two hours and it was so insightful and so, um, so specific. And he asked questions that, you know, as you had mentioned, we've been doing some of these interviews and, you know, sometimes you get similar questions and that's totally fine because you're, you're in the process of kind of preaching to people, right? Like, Hey, yeah. look at this thing. Look at this thing. Look at this thing. And he asked some of those because you kind of have to, right? Like you got to ask yeah. like, what's the book about? But he also asked like, so many interesting questions about the structure of the book, the themes of the book, the mechanics of the book, and 
the lettering, he asked questions about the lettering, which was really great, um, which is a, you know, an, an art form that is criminally underappreciated that both Nicole and I are very passionate about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I'm so stoked for the book to be the like featured cover. Like, I can't even believe that shit. I can't even believe that shit. Like, I don't want this to sound like gloating because it's not. It's literally me being like, how did I wake up in a world where this happened? Like, this is insane to me. Yeah, I mean, we've we've actually done an interview for Panel by Panel before. And that's okay. cool and exciting. And, um, you know, we were thrilled to be in that issue. Um, and we've done a bunch of interviews for other people, podcasts, and, you know, review magazines and stuff. But to have someone, you know, when, when we first talked to Haas about this, I thought we were just going to get another maybe interview or an, mm-hmm. an article about the, the, the book. But to have an entire issue dedicated to our, like, our book? Like, nah. Like, there's people doing, like, breakdown literary, you know, essays about our book. And that is so fucking surreal to me. Like, I don't think I ever thought that would happen. Because... First of all, it just doesn't really exist in comics. And second of all, who am I? Who are we? Like, we're important for that? Like, and the fact that someone like Haas, who obviously we respect a lot and is a very intelligent um, human being who makes this beautiful book, like, we're so honored, really. Like, one of the, they they revealed one of the essay titles, and it was like... Yeah, it was like, I don't even, I don't remember what the specific title was now, but it was like, it was like a, an allusion to Kant. It was like, it was like our book, like, had something to do with, I don't even remember what it was now, but it was, I was just like blown away of like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is insane. Like, this is, and it was, it worked on like four different levels. I yeah. wish I could remember what it was now. I feel like such a chump not being able to remember this. It wasn't Kant, but it was another philosopher. Yeah, yeah. it was like, it was like an English philosopher from like the turn of the century or something, but I was like blown away. I was like, wow, this person not only got the like in air quotes joke of the book about like reappropriation and like mm-hmm. stealing and, and taking credit for other people's work, but also paired it with a like pun title from another philosopher that like worked on like four different levels. And I was just like, I, I can't even, it's, this is surreal. I can't wait to read that one. We, we've only read our own interview so far uh but when we get a chance to sit down and actually read the issue mm-hmm. yeah i still can't believe it's happening <laughs> i can't either so you know i guess subscribe to panel by panel you can find yeah. it on the internet it's panel it does it does it comes out the same day as the book uh panel x panel i don't actually know what the site's name is i should know that um but you can find it on the internet if you just google panel x panel magazine um <laughs> And they got nominated for an Eisner this year, the Oscar of yep. Comics. And they won so, last year, right? I don't know if they won no, last year. Or the year uh, women Read About Comics won last year. Yeah, yeah. I could have sworn they mm-hmm. won something. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think they won the year before that. or like. I, I think that might be what it was. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they, they won. won. Okay, they have won yeah. one, though. Yeah, they won one. Yeah, they, okay, they definitely yeah, yeah. won. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they because it, it was like it like went like they gave it to all the Eisner seal on the yeah cover totally no, they've they've definitely won one because it the the like the last couple years were like Roy Thomas's alter ego won and then panel by panel and then uh mm-hmm. and then women write about comics cool 
Yeah. Or something. Those, those were the three that were in the soup. I don't remember if that's the exact order. But. <laughs> sure. Sounds right. But yeah. crazy that you've got that memorized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Part of that being is because I like all of those things. And like, uh-huh. but to me, like, you know, when write about comics does great work. Mm-hmm. Alter Ego, Roy Thomas has been publishing that shit for like literally 50 years. Uh, but to me, I, I, I personally voted for uh, panel by panel because mm-hmm. it's, there's just nothing like it, and I think it it's it serves the community in a way that is is very deserving of recognition. As are the other two, but come on, Roy Thomas, Alterigo has been recognized. Like we get it, we know what it is. We're we're also the people who, after a long day of tabling, will just go to the Eisners and watch <laughs> yeah. for like three yeah. hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I love the Eisners. I, I know I know they it's so complicated. It's like. It's not a perfect system, but when you're, as a cartoonist, mm-hmm. when you're there, sitting in that crowd, watching people get props for something that they poured their heart into, I get really emotional. Like, I don't care. It's really political. You know, it's almost always Batman or whatever the shit. But, like, somebody who makes the things that we make is getting honored for a thing that they made. And there's something just really pure about that, even though it's fucked and political and all these different things, you know? And yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of also like, there's a racist linear lineage around Will Eisner's name. Like, <laughs> yeah. and there's also the legal battles of the fact that the Eisners used to be called the Kirby's. And mm-hmm. in my opinion, should still be called the Kirby's. But all of those caveats aside, it's the only truly kind of, pure celebration of the art of comics on a large scale that is the entirety of the established community and that's not to say it's the only way comics are celebrated because it's that's not true but when you see you know old you know cartoonists from the 1930s who can barely walk like getting up there and crying Mm -hmm. because they're like i gave my life to this art form and now i've got this statue and thank you so much and whatever like like Nicole's not wrong. Like, I'm not going to lie. Every time we go there, I fucking cry. Like, every time. Something happens. Like, you know, there was... When when Emile Ferris won for oh. My Favorite Thing is Monsters, she got up there and told her, like, not the entire life story, but, like, the story about, you know, her, like, being paralyzed by uh, West Nile and having to relearn how to draw. And she, she walked up there with her cane and, like, everybody in the audience was in tears. It was... I didn't know any of that stuff and it just was a really incredible moment, you know. But that's the thing that's even crazier is it wasn't just one moment because she won like four times. She won three Eisners that night and every (laughs) speech she gave like leveled up the just like everybody. And by the time she came out for the third Eisner, everyone was kind of like laughing like what are you going to do now, Emil? You're going to just like tell another story about how you like taped a ruler with a pencil on the end of it to your arms you could draw <laughs> overcame all of the odds to become yeah. an eisner winner at the age of like 55 or whatever she was yeah and then she was like uh yeah i did that i i you know i was paralyzed i could only move my right hand slightly and i i had my daughter duct tape a pencil in my hand so i could draw and i spent a year learning how to move again while making this comic and also uh when it came out, it was supposed to come out a year before it, was, it actually came out because an entire pallet of books got lost in fucking Peru for like nine months. All of the books she had spent so long, she'd spent all this time and effort and like 
willed this thing into being and then it got lost in like fucking peru somehow jesus and then after that she was like she, she was like and after that all of that to just win these awards and to have this recognition of this community it just means everything to me and i thought i was gonna die like i thought i, <laughs> I thought i thought my heart was gonna fall out of my mouth onto the floor and i was going to cease to be because i loved comics so much in that moment and I loved her so much, and I love that book, and I love the story around that book, and the fact that Gary Groth and Fanagraphics saw the potential of a book which, on its surface, does not appear to be imminently commercial by mm-hmm. especially a 50-something-year-old woman who's drawing a comic about, like, oh. being into, like, werewolves and shit. Like, this sounds fucking whack. But man. A, a young Jewish girl who's into werewolves and is completely drawn on like lined paper. <laughs> yeah, like that sounds that sounds like a oh, good free. That sounds like, unfortunately, that sounds like the emails that I get at like two in the morning where people are asking me how to publish comics. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like my mom has a werewolf comic. How do I publish this? Mm. Can you help me set up a blurb account? Does Create Space allow for printing? on uh on lined paper but it's not it's 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 so distinct visually and has such a voice literally and metaphorically and she is just somebody i have so much respect and and admiration for and that sitting in that darkened amphitheater convention hall whatever and knowing knowing that everybody else in that room loved comics as much as nicole and i was just there's not a better feeling on earth. Like we said, yeah, it's got problems. There's a racist lineage and it's political. And Tom King won 50 comics for that stupid Batman's dog comic when it should have been Ben Passmore's Your Black Friend. But fuck, man. It's so great when everybody actually finds that moment and everything lines up. It just, Mm -hmm. there's not, there's nothing like it. So, uh, in, in the meantime, uh, you know, kind of looking forward, uh, you guys are working on a uh, YA graphic novel that's due out next year, uh, Forest Hills Bootleg Society. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what can you tell us about uh, that book? What can you tease us with? <laughs> yeah, so it's a, um, a 2005 period piece about a group of high school girls who um, get a hold of some uh, bootleg hentai DVDs and they basically start a black market distribution ring in their school selling hentai to the boys and it's kind of this character study of you know their lives and you know their relationships and what this weird underground business does to them um, yeah it's pretty fun uh, I've been working on it for almost two years now. <laughs> wow. Um, year and a half, I guess. Um, and we're getting near the end. Um, been doing some of the last notes and stuff, and I'm really excited. And it still doesn't come out until 20, summer, I think, of 2022. Um, but closer and closer every day. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Uh, I think it's really cool. But I'm a little biased because I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, is it, is it different or, or, or more challenging, uh, you know, working, you know, working in young, young adult after, 
you know, uh, uh, Fuck Up Squad and, and everyone is Tulip, which are a little bit more. Fuck Up Squad is coming. You know what I mean? I would. The stuff that we make is almost YA anyway. You know, like we're really right on that border and it's what is generally described as new adult, but people don't like to call it that or because there's nowhere to shelve it in the bookstores. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, so like Forest Hills is basically what we wanted to make, what we normally would make, just like slightly younger, you know? Yeah. Um, just something that fits a little bit better in the market right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe we've asterisked a couple swear words, you know? But yeah, really- I mean, the, Yeah, the amount of kind of, in air quotes, changes that it's there's like not next to nothing. Like I, I'm, I'm very surprised, honestly, just because I figured, you know, this is a big step up for us. You know, this is fucking Simon and Schuster. They're like one of the, you know, top five old guard publishers, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and I expected it to be a little bit more kind of like, come on, kid, you can't do that indie comics bullshit here. You can't have, you know. Yeah. Can't have a tentacle monster fucking somebody, uh, which technically we don't do, but also, <laughs> but also you read between those lines and some of those panels and it's like, eh, all right, okay. Um, well, the lines are tentacles, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You read between I those tentacles. literally at one point. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah, literally. There's a bunch of tentacles coming out of a, a panel at one point. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, I, I mean, our editor on the on the project, uh, Julia McCarthy, has been super supportive, and you know, it's it's being put out through Athenaeum, which is the imprint that put out uh, "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret," and "Cloudy with a Chance at Meatballs." So, and Benicula. and Benicula, I loved Benicula as a kid. Yeah, so there's a there's a small part of me that's just like, what if we like made money? <laughs> <laughs> What if that happened? Like, yeah, hmm. it'll be weird. I don't know if that's allowed. Yeah, right. I don't think so either. Yeah. <laughs> what if um, I accidentally did a Dave Pilkey? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We asked yeah. Raymond at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. You want to um, be Raina? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, the the book itself is you know it's a very personal story for Nicole and I. Uh, especially you know I I grew up in a small town in Arizona, very religious background, very conservative place and a pretty conservative upbringing. And the book itself is about people reckoning with those environments and trying to spread their wings and fly and maybe not succeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of, the, that's, that's just my aesthetic, man. When Nicole loves sad girls with hair blown in the wind and I just love what's the saddest possible version of this. And uh, hopefully this book uh does both okay yes. <laughs> um so uh what are what are you what are you both reading right now so i for the basically first time in the entire pandemic have been able to go to the shop again because i was like not going out and seeing not seeing anyone sure. and i i worked at a shop <laughs> before the pandemic and then I got fired because of the pandemic. So mm. actually I haven't been in a really long time, but um, we went the other day and I've been picking up um, Layla Starr uh, mm-hmm. by Rambi and Philippe Andrade. And that book I have been very pleasantly surprised by um, because, you know, I saw it. I was like, this looks cool. It's a boom book. Um, but I didn't really know what to expect. And I've been really excited about it. You know, it's, um, 
definitely got a voice and Felipe Andrade is just an incredible drafts for drafts person. Mm-hmm. The way that he um, kind of manipulates and molds anatomy and form is really interesting. And his color is fantastic. Yeah, he's, he's great. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been, let's, the, this quick stack here, uh, ultra mega planet sized X-Men, beta mm. ray bill, uh, Orphan and the Five Beasts, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, another Ultra Mega issue. Uh, so uh, apparently, I just read comics drawn by people who put a ton of little tiny lines into things. So. <laughs> Surprising I, to no one. I, I was gonna say, you know, a lot, a lot of good monster art in those, uh, yeah. in those books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm reading John too, and I will steal your Beta Ray Bill at some point because Daniel Warren Johnson. Yeah, I love that guy, man. I love yeah. that guy. He I love also Murder Falcon and I love Beta Ray Bill. <laughs> same, same. Yeah. He's also one of those better the Wonder Woman stuff. Yeah, too? oh yeah, I love that too. Absolutely. Okay. He's he's one of those people where it's like, you know, when when you meet Mike Mignola and he's not necessarily like a super warm and fuzzy guy, you're like, sure. okay. You're like a fucking god on on Comics Earth, and people are probably always telling you how amazing you are. So you kind of are like kind of like whatever you're you're, yeah. you're kind of like a gruff uncle right like okay cool i get it um gruff uncle hellboy yeah totally yeah uh you know same thing with frank miller racism and all that shit that happened in the mid-2000s aside yeah uh you know where he's kind of like weird noir uncle like i feel like uh, there's a lot of people in comics who are just kind of like weirdo uncles right daniel warren johnson is the nicest person he is mm-hmm. so skilled, so intelligent, and such a brilliant illustrator and writer, which mm-hmm. normally, like, let's be real. One usually, or the other. People, usually people are one or the other. Like, I love Dave Gibbons. I think he's an amazing illustrator. I've read a lot of Dave Gibbons' comics, and they're comics. You know, they're fine. They're like, oh, cool. Like, you wrote a Green Lantern story with the beginning, middle, and end, and you did it. Great. But they're not really changing the world, right? Um, whereas Martha Washington, Give Me Liberty, like I love that book. And, and specifically, Dave Gibbons' illustrations in that book are just so, like you can tell that he's like reckoning with his legacy on every page because he's just like, I will not be defined by Watchmen. I will not be defined by Watchmen on every page. And it's so cool to see. And, you know, there's a lot of people like that in comics. They're, they're great draftsmen or they're great character building world building writers or whatever and it's so so bizarre to me that daniel warren johnson is an amazing person and as good at everything as he's good i know there's darkness in there somewhere i know he's got bodies buried somewhere (laughs) and i'm very curious what they are and where they are but god damn is it just impressive to see yeah yeah he's pretty amazing absolutely uh, well, uh, Dave, Nicole, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. Final question. How can people uh, follow you guys online and keep up with everyone's tool and everything else that you've got going on? So uh, for the book, it is available in comic shops on June 30th, bookstores mm-hmm. on, I believe it is July 14th. And it is currently being serialized on everyoneistulip.com. We're putting up three pages a week. Uh, so if you want a preview of the book before you buy it, if you want to get a little taste of it, you want to read the whole thing online and then buy it or not buy it or whatever you want. It's all on there. Um, <laughs> pretty easy to find. Um, 
currently today you could technically pre-order it, but you said by the time this comes out, it will be out. Um, and then to find me, I am, my website is NicoleGu.com. My Instagram is uh, ngu, uh, and my Twitter is at NicoleGu, uh, and my last name is spelled G-O-U-X, like X-Men. Hell yeah, like X-Men. <laughs> Hell yeah, baby. Uh, you can find me uh, at the uh, new Krako, oh no, Araco, the new Araco uh, capital on Mars, chilling, <laughs> with, uh, chilling with Magneto and the other X-Men who helped him make, uh, you know, colonize Mars. Uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Pretty excited about... Well, but maybe he's about to go on trial for murder, so maybe not. Yeah, maybe yeah, there's that too. There's that, there's that too. But you can always hang out with Iska the Unbeaten and Doug's large wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, you can find me uh, on TikTok, Instagram, and uh, Twitter, selling my soul one piece at a time to the algorithm. Uh, <laughs> under the username X Dave Baker X, you can find uh, my books both with Nicole and separately uh, on my website heydavebaker.com. Or if you want to listen to my deep dive explainer podcast, it's called Deep Cuts. You can find it wherever you get podcasts. We did a whole two-hour musical episode about the file sharing service Napster and how it changed the music industry. Eleven original songs that I and my co-host Andrew Price sing. Um, we also did a bunch of weirdo stuff that's not musicals, but you know, that's usually, usually when I say musical to people, they're like, oh, you guys made a musical? It's like, yeah, yeah, we made a musical. It's really weird. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, deep cuts, everyone'stool.com. And uh, if you like comics about girls with their hair blown in the wind, please pick up Everyone's Tulip. All right, yeah. Dave. <laughs> Dave, Nicole, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at comicsxf.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember... That one time Pete Wisdom stopped a vampire invasion from the moon. W-N-Q-A.